Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, church. Um, oh, thanks, thanks, appreciate it. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Hopefully I will learn how to speak a sentence before too long into this preach. Um, right, uh, good morning Westside, good morning Battersea, and hello to you watching online. And if you've got me in your ear as you're listening on a podcast, hi. Um, I'm Jo Frost and I'm back again for part two of this series of Being Human. Um, Why are we looking at this topic? Why are we having this conversation as a church? Why have I been obsessing about this idea of being human for far too many years now? Well, I think it's because I see around us just how crucial a question of what it means to be human actually is and how it affects us on so many different levels. Society is struggling at the moment. We don't need to look very far to see just how struggling it is. It's struggling with increasing inequality. We are struggling with depression, obesity, prescription drug use, social isolation, loneliness. The stats are quite shocking. Over a quarter of the adult population in England is being prescribed antidepressants, painkillers, or related medication. Nearly 70% of Americans are on at least one prescription drug, and more than 50% take two. Children are being uh, medicated with stimulants, antidepressants, ADHD drugs. Students are anxious, risk-averse, concerned for their mental health, and increasingly experiencing depression. For every single one of us in this room, that is either a personal story or a close relationship story. We all feel this. We have all felt and seen the political turmoil and the implications of economic crashes, what is happening to the rental market right now and how hard it is to find a home. We're facing up to the environmental crisis and the long-term implications of COVID. We've seen that firsthand in this community. Doctors who have little time to ask a wider set of questions for the patient in front of them are simply only able to attempt to treat the immediate symptoms. Teachers are under increasing pressure to please parents and get results so they just teach to the test. We advertise unhealthy foods right next to gym membership. Our sports teams are sponsored by betting companies. We promote a vast array of consumer goods alongside the financial products and debt relief required to sustain them. Something is fundamentally wrong in our world today. The cultural stories that we are immersed in that teach us how to live our lives are struggling to bear the weight of the reality of the world that we find ourselves in. And yet they shape us. They shape how we think, how we act, what we live in. They shape our daily routines, the clothes that we wear, and the things that we say. 
But our cultural stories also contain presuppositions about reality, who God is, what does it mean to live in a spiritual world, what is the world like, and how we are to be human. And all the while, these big questions keep on coming. Who am I supposed to be? What will make me happy? What does it look like to love well? What is good or bad? How can I make sure I live on the right side of history? Why is there injustice or violence? Who can I trust with what's important? We ask these questions every day. And our lives are built around their answers, supported or challenged by the stories that we live in. And it is my belief that these cultural stories, the ones that we encounter and bubble up in all the time, are weaker than we think they are. And it is my belief that the God story, the story that is dimmed down, muted, discredited, questioned around us, is so much stronger than we think it is. So this is why we are having this conversation as a church. This is why we're exploring this topic at a big level so that when the big questions or the little questions bubble up, we've got some resource, some tools, some understanding, some, uh, something in our kit bag so that we can deal with them, so we can engage. The point of this series is to look at our cultural stories and their foundation to look out for the moments where they dehumanize us, twist us away from who we're supposed to be, but also look at how the God story can rehumanize this conversation. In other words, we need to understand what the God story, that grand narrative of the Bible that shapes the Christian understanding of who we are and the world that we inhabit, what that God story has to say about humanity so that we can choose to live in and share that vision of what it means to be human as we follow Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the things that Jesus did. Now, some of this I laid out last week. If you weren't here, do listen back. Um, but the one key thing that I think you've got to know today that you might have missed last week is that the God story tells us that we are created to be God's image bearers. It's a phrase that we read in the Bible but doesn't always make sense to us. To be God's image-bearing objects is to represent God, to project his likeness out into the world, and to share in his nature. That is what it means to be truly, fully human, to be like him and to do what he does. But that was last week, and we are in a new day. Um, so today, I'd like to introduce you to um, a toolkit, uh, something that we have developed that is helpful to explore these conversations. We call it the Being Human Lens. Now, how many here wear glasses or contact lenses? Yes. It always amazes me just how blind we all are. Um, so thank you for that. And I can even see a few sunglasses on our heads, which implies that at some point soon, summer is coming. Come on, Jesus. <laughs> we all wear glasses at some point in our lives, whether it's reading glasses um, or 
hopefully sunglasses. Most of us spend at best a moment or two a day checking them, cleaning them, but we spend all day looking through them to the world around us. Um, the lens frames everything. Many of us may also use figurative lenses to understand the world, like a political lens that sees the world in terms of left or right, or an economic lens that views the world in terms of market forces and finance and trade, or maybe a feminist lens that views the world in terms of patriarchy, power or dominance. This is the being human lens. It's very bright. Um, it is a tool to help us see more clearly who we are and the world that we're a part of. In a world of impaired sight, the idea is that this can help focus our vision. So this is like a trip to the opticians to check our lenses, to help us see a little bit more what we're looking through so that we can understand what we're seeing. So at the centre is our focus point. What does it mean when we talk about being human? And it is surrounded by these four core aspects, which we will explore over the coming weeks. We are going to be looking through this lens to explore the fullness of what it means to be human. So today, we're starting up in significance and exploring the truth that you matter. Then, um, in two weeks' time, we are going to be in the lower court... Um, half, we're going to be looking at connection and presence. We matter to each other, and it matters that you are here right now. And then finally, we're going to end with participation. The difference we make in the world matters. We're going to use the core aspects of the lens to explore the God story and the God of that story who changes us and how we see the world. So today, we're going to start with that core aspect significance. This is the aspect that points to the truth that you matter. You are significant. To be human is to be significant. Today's truth that we're going to explore is that God knows you. And we can trust when he speaks over you. He knows who he's speaking over. And we can trust, therefore, in when he declares you are important to him. You matter. The Bible is full of people who are God's image bearers. And we see glimpses of God's character and likeness in their stories. Um, the book of 1 Samuel is the story of Israel's hunt for a true king. At the beginning of the God story, in Genesis 1 to 3, we hear of God's intention of humanity. And the chapters are full of royal language. Talks about power and dominion and uh, the ability to change and to rule. In other words, when God started with humanity, he wanted us to all be royalty over all of creation. But by the time we get to 1 Samuel and the people of God, the Israelites, are living in the world, they're looking at how other people live, and instead of following God's design, they want to follow the world's, how times have changed. Um, so they ask, instead of for us all to be God's representative, they want just one king, just like everybody else. 
And therefore, just like everybody else, they got King Saul, who was just like every other nation's king. He failed to know God, he failed to be like God, and he failed to do things the way God would have them done. Saul did not share in God's likeness. Saul did not partner with God, and so God rejected Saul. So the prophet Samuel, the person who was responsible for finding and anointing and commissioning this king on behalf of God, needs a new one. And so in 1 Samuel 16, God sends Samuel to Bethlehem to meet Jesse and to anoint one of his sons to become the next king. So there is this kind of fashion show parade in front of Samuel as Jesse presents his firstborn son, broad shoulders, tall, handsome. Surely this one is significant enough to be Israel's next king. And yet God says, nope, not him. So the next son comes up, similar in height and stature and attractiveness, and still yet God says no. On and on, the uh, sons line up, and yet none of the ones in the lineup is who God has in mind. Instead, Samuel has to say, is there any more? And the forgotten son, the least significant son, out in the pastures is the one called in. God had searched the hearts of those in front of him. And he saw in the heart of David somebody after his own. And so God anoints him to be king. A representative of God's character, likeness and nature to humanity. The one that nobody else thought to even mention. God knows the overlooked. God recognizes the significance to whom others seem only worthy to dismiss. One of David's lasting legacies is the book of Psalms. He is the author of many of them. And here in these, book, in these poems, we see God, um, sorry, we see David praising, celebrating, crying out to, and searching for God. In Psalm 139, he wonders at how God searches and knows us. So however familiar or fresh these words may be to you, I just want to spend a moment reading them over us. So whatever it takes for you to get yourself comfortable, close your eyes for me. I always have to relax my shoulders. I don't know why. That's just my signal. Take a deep breath and hear these words spoken over you personally as if they were an intimate conversation between you and God. Psalm 139 verses 1 to 6. Oh Lord, you have examined my heart. You know everything about me. You know when I stand up, when I sit down. You know my thoughts even when I am far away. <laughs> you see when I travel, 
And when I rest at home, you know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say, even before I say it, Lord. You go before me and follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too great to understand. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion. As I was woven together in the dark of a womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day was passed. God knows our every movement, what we will say, what we think, because he created us, each of us, every one of us. We are fearfully, wonderfully made. This psalm was not written by somebody who was perfect. David was a deeply flawed person. <laughs> Amen. He knew guilt. He knew shame. He'd committed both murder and adultery. But what David did know was what it was to be deeply and personally known by God. And that knowledge affected him profoundly. We each need to know that we matter, that your existence in some way is important. We need a story that reassures us that our life has some kind of significance. And the God story paints us a picture that to be human, to be here right now matters because you share in the, in the significance of that God who knows us and gives us our identity. But I think sometimes the reason why this is an emotional moment is because the God story isn't the only story in town. And actually, our significance gets battered from a number of different directions. Our cultural stories can have a massive impact on our lives and the world around us. These stories are so persuasive and pervasive because much of the time they're built on an essence of truth, but they can be wrapped up in lies and in fiction. We live in a cultural story that has radically affected the way that we live. And it started as a reaction against some of the problematic dominant religious uh, authorities of the day. About 500 years ago, it was almost unthinkable to not believe in God. God was a given. 
that was the way the world worked. Now it's kind of quaint to believe in God. It's cute. Oh, bless you. You still think that? <laughs> Secularism places doubt at the center of belief. It's not that it's anti-God. It just says that everything's up for grabs. Make it make sense to you. If it works, that's great. But don't impose. Don't apply. Every belief system needs to be debated. And any external authority should be questioned. And so doing, everything gets contested. Everything can be argued about. Everything can be discredited. We are skeptical and suspicious. We don't know who to trust or what to believe. Because without God as the authority and foundation that truly knows who we are and can guide us on how to live, the secular story is just full of doubt. And so we have to find for ourselves sources of significance. Now, some of us will have grown up with a earn it storyline for our significance. There's a set of targets that we need to achieve as we go on. We've got to hit the good job, the perfect family, the nice, bank account, uh, the nice house, the healthy bank account, lack of wrinkles. That's my target at the moment, not winning. Um, we need to prove ourselves, earn credibility. Others' affection or approval comes from getting it right. Our significance is based on how other people see us and what they think about what it is that they see. But what happens to our significance if others see us differently than we would want them to? When they say that we aren't good enough, smart enough, tall enough, Black enough, white enough, progressive enough, rich enough, kind enough, the list goes on. We each crave to be known, recognized, and appreciated, but that can leave us really vulnerable to the misunderstandings and the mistreatment of others. Relying on other people means that our significance, the truth that we matter, can be questioned, undermined, taken away. So in response, some of us will gravitate more for, away from an earn it storyline to a be it storyline. My significance comes from within. It's not up to you what you say about me. I'm going to stand in my truth. Thank you very much. We rely on ourselves. It's important how I think about myself, how I define myself. You do you. I'm going to be my best self. <sighs> But when everything is stripped away, behind all the fake it till you make it, Insta filters, followers on TikToks, the promotion, the hair, the partner, if the core of who I am exposed to all, for all to see, do I know inside that I really matter? Because the story of doubt and insecurity plays on the fickle nature of our ego. One minute, I can be wrecked with self-doubt, questioning every bit of my being, fixating on the tiniest flaw. And then the next minute, I'm bulldozing my way through life, unwilling or unable to see myself from a perspective other than my own. Because, well, 
Delusions and blind spots plague us all. And the more I look back on my life, the less I trust myself to know me well. I get me wrong quite a lot of the time. I'm not a good confirmation of my own significance any more than anyone else is. Nobody really knows me. Not truly. Not fully. And if they did, I'm scared that they might say that I don't actually matter as much as I long to. Now, this story of insignificance has a big impact on our habits, on how we live, the makeup, gym membership, body issues, the life, uh, work-life work imbalance that we work hard for. It affects our friendships and relationships as we look for affirmation or encouragement or when we receive criticism and challenge. It affects our spending habits, our internal thought life. How we live is radically affected by where we feel significance comes from and how insignificant we may be feeling. The search for somebody to know us or the fear of what they might think if they actually did affects us all in a myriad of ways. We are made in the image of a good and true God who knows us and loves us. But our stories twist us away from him. They dehumanize us, making us doubt our significance or diminish someone else's. We are left unknown and insecure. So we turn to look at Jesus. Jesus is the true and better David. He shows us a life of perfect faith and intimacy. Jesus is the true and better king because he really does represent God into creation and he points us back to the Father God who is good and who is true. The life of Jesus shows us the image of a good and true God who knows us and invites us to know him too. What I find interesting about Jesus' significance is that it isn't something that he felt he needed to be earned, nor was it something that he demanded other people to regard and take notice of. He walked the same through crowds plotting to kill him and crowds wanting to enthrone him. He hung out with undesirables of society and he refused to pander to the elite's projected sense of superiority. He didn't fake his identity, nor did he hide who he was. The one place that Jesus did draw his, his significance from is from his relationship with God the Father. At his baptism... And then again at the transfiguration, God declares, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. God knew Jesus and God declared Jesus's full and true identity over him. That was the source of Jesus's significance and that was all he needed. Time and again, we see Jesus uh, having the habit of withdrawing from crowds removing himself from the crush of adulation and fame, seeking a quiet place to pray. Solitude and reconnection with the primary habits of Jesus. And I'd suggest that that is what 
uh, allow Jesus to speak the way he did in regards to his relationship with the Father. Because he talks about it in terms of intimacy and depth. I only do what I see the Father doing. Nobody knows the Son except the Father. I know the Father and the Father knows me. I and the Father are one. Jesus knew who he was because he knew God and knew who God said he was. His significance was assured. It was not questioned. No one and nothing could take it away from him. And then, having received it, he projected it out into the world. The waves and the wind obeyed him. Food was multiplied at his mere command. Healing happened by his touch or just simply because he was in the room. Death had no power over his word. Imagine like watching a black and white movie. As Jesus enters the God story, it's like the character in full color entering the film. Like any character in full color in a black and white movie, your eye is drawn. Jesus stands out and people are drawn to his radiance and to his beauty. But more than that, wherever Jesus went, he left colorful marks and imprints. He brought out the full color version of life that all of humanity and creation had been created for. This is what it means to represent God and share in his likeness. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus declared. Jesus didn't write a book, but he formed a community of word and deed, empowered by the Holy Spirit, a community whose significance is found in becoming like Jesus. Everyone, everywhere, every day. This is the community we are each invited into so that we too can live truly, fully human lives, representing God and projecting his character into the world. We get to invite other people on this journey too. Dallas Willard, for the win, says, Our hunger for significance is a signal of who we are and why we're here. It's also the basis for humanity's enduring response to Jesus. For he always takes individual human beings as seriously as their shredded dignity demands. And he has the resources to carry through with his high estimate of them. Genuine self-knowledge begins by looking at God and noting how God looks at us. We matter because we matter to God. It's not because what you've done or what you haven't done, what has been spoken over you or what you have believed about yourself. You cannot earn your significance, nor can you lose it. Your significance is not conditional. It is not insecure. It cannot be doubted. It is certain. The Father looks on you. He knows you. And he says that you matter. You are important to him. So I'm going to welcome back the band.
Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.